This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Producing to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These seminars are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York on 42nd Street, right in the heart of Times Square, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all meet, and where the best of New York goes out across the country, and the best of the regional theatres, which is so important to us, come back into New York. This is but one of the American Theatre Wing's programs. We are an all-year-round organization, and we work very hard to contribute to the community through the theatre. We have a hospital program in which people from the various shows and, and cabarets go out to our hospitals to entertain those that cannot come to the theatre. We go to private hospitals, and we go to veterans' hospitals, and we go to nursing homes, and we go to aid centers, and we help not only the patients but the staff as well to have a little lightness in their life. And we also have a school program. The Saturday Theater for Children public school program is a really wonderful one. It means that on Saturday mornings, children go to see live theater. We hope that they will then develop that interest and that need for going to the theater, not just because it is a special occasion, a, a birthday or an anniversary, or because a critic said it was wonderful, but because it is good for them, because the theater does such magic things for them. It also enriches their whole vocabulary. It takes them out of their everyday lives, and it helps them to be with their parents, because in this way, parents cooperate with the school and they, too, turn serve the community. And these seminars, which you are seeing now, is an outgrowth of the Wing School. Today's seminar is on the playwright and the director. We added this year another program. We went to London, and we produced, with the open-end BBC programs, a Working in the Theatre London. We also have added still another program to the Wings all year round programs. And that is in cooperation with the O'Neill Center, 20 American students and 20 Russian students from Leningrad will be coming into New York under the auspices of the American Theatre Wing, and they will workshop what they have been working on at the O'Neill, the American Musical Comedy. We're very pleased, and I think that's a very exciting kind of thing that's going to happen. Before I turn this over to our co-moderators, I'd like to introduce Lucille Lortel. 
is not only a, a marvelous woman and a marvelous, uh, wonderful person in the theater, everybody knows Lucille, but she does wonderful things. She makes them happen. And this is an exciting time in her life because there's a celebration of her life in the theater, which is taking place right now at City University. And I hope that you all go down and, and see it at some time or other because it really is most interesting. I also like to introduce Dasha Epstein, who is producer and who handled, he was a member of, of the board of directors of Vice President. I will now turn this over to our co-moderators who will introduce their panelists to you. And it, I'll start with Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing. She is a, has been an actress, a, a, a producer, a director, a writer. I don't think there's anything that Jean hasn't done or can't do. And next to her is George White, who is head of the O'Neill Center, where wonderful things take place all year round but especially in the fall, isn't it, that you have the program of playwrights and directors, and it, it adds a great deal to the life of the theater. So now, I'll turn this over to Jean and to George. Thank you. I'm going to uh, depart for a second uh, from the uh, text here. Uh, with, uh, without Isabel's permission, but I wanted to say something uh, to you all. We are in the presence of, we know that, of greatness in a particular way. Uh, this week, the Players Club, uh, the uh, famous Edwin Booth uh, Club for Players, inducted the first women uh, ever to be members of the club, and we are in the presence of four of those wonderful women in the theater, uh, Lucille, Marion Seldy, and our own Isabel, Stevenson and Jean Dalrymple, and it's a great honor for them, and I'm delighted about that. Um, next to Isabel is uh, our panelist, Pamela Berlin, uh, director of the current plays Early One Evening at the Rainbow Bar and Grill, and Steel Magnolias, and her other New York credits include To Gillian on her 37th birthday, Crossing Delancey, and uh, Hansel and Gretel at the New York City Opera. Um, she has taught at the Ensemble Studio Theater, Playwrights Horizons, and a variety of, says various colleges. I'm not sure I ever <laughs> saw it there. <laughs> uh, and on her uh, left is uh, an old partner in crime of mine, uh, Wendy Wasserstein, who won the 1989 Pulitzer Prize uh, and the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize for her play, Heidi's Chronicles, the Heidi Chronicles, and is a resident playwright for Playwrights Horizons. Her uh, other works include Isn't It Romantic and Uncommon Women and Others. On my left, twice removed, as the Irish say, <coughs> is uh, Cindy Lou Johnson. And um, she's a, a lovely playwright. And, uh, uh, but she's also a wonderful writer for TV. She contributed two of the Vietnam War stories, which was a very famous program and very successful. And uh, <clears throat> her play, Brilliant Traces, which was done by Circle Rep, is going to be done out in the Los Angeles 
environment very soon. And uh, beside that, <coughs> she's worked on films. She has one called Sometimes I Wonder, starring Colleen Dewhurst. And that's been shown already on TV. And uh, her name, of course, is Cindy Lou Johnson. <laughs> I sometimes go through the introduction and forget to say the name. That's why I said that. <laughs> Here's a name I won't forget. You can really believe. Uh, this is one of the great ones. There's really very little greatness around these days, it seems to me. But this man has been great as long as I remember, and that's a long, long time. <laughs> uh, his first play was Born Yesterday, which is back on the boards and wonderful, as it always was. I was at the opening of it. As a matter of fact, I had a little bit to do with that. I don't think you ever knew it. Uh, who was the director? Josie Abbott, this time? Yeah. Originally or this no, time? No, originally. Me. You directed your own play? Me. Well, then you. <laughs> I, now, you see, that is something I never knew, and I'm so glad. Uh, it was absolutely wonderfully directed, of course, and it was an astounding hit. I was there at the opening night, and the theater rocked. And then he went on to do marvelous things, not only in the theater, but in films. And he's done some of the really classic films, uh, sometimes writing them with his late wife, Ruth Gordon, and uh, directing them. He was, he's a wonderful director because he, he isn't worried about making himself grand as a director. He, he develops a character, which I think all great film directors should do and don't do. And, and by developing the character, he makes you much more thrilled about the whole piece. Uh, I never like a direction where they're worried about this, how it looks or how it sounds and whatnot. Anyway, this is Garson Kane. <laughs> <laughs> and we always begin by saying, what gave you the idea to be a writer or a director and how did you start being one? And let's start with Pamela. <laughs> um, well, I was a bad actress, for one thing. Uh, I always loved the theater. I mean, I was doing plays at camp when I was young and in high school. Uh, but I think in college, when I really directed uh, my first play, I just knew immediately that if I wanted to pursue theater, that's where I belonged, not on stage. Although. I loved being on stage. I always knew I was a bit of a fraud. And, uh, but it wasn't really until I graduated. I, I loved the theater and did a lot of it, but could never really admit that I could make, go into it or make a living from it. So I did a lot of, pursued a lot of other things, pre-med, clinical <laughs> psychology, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, and it really wasn't until a year after I graduated from college that for some bell went off and I decided, uh, I had to face facts, and that's what I really loved. So, um, so then I actually went and got a, an MFA in directing because I hadn't had any kind of formal training at all, and then started wending my way slowly, eventually towards New York, um, various stops in the Midwest and so forth in between. Um, 
And then, basically, I was very lucky when I got to New York. I did some stage managing, knowing that it was probably going to take me a while before I could really start directing. Um, but then I found a home at the Ensemble Studio Theater, which was a major stroke of luck for me, because that did become a home. And I was the literary manager there for a few years, which taught me, among other things, how to uh, look at, examine new plays, work with new playwrights, which was invaluable to me. And after a few years, realized that uh, I had to give that up because it wasn't giving me enough time to really direct. So I've been out on my own doing the freelance number for about six years. <laughs> and that's sort of my story in a, a nutshell. Good background. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cindy Lou, would you like to start about, talk about your sure. beginnings? Well, um, I came into the theater very sideways, I guess. I, I wrote fiction for years and uh, I think I, I wrote my first book when I was seven or something and <laughs> dedicated to my father. I think my mother said, thanks a lot, you know. <laughs> so um, anyway, I, I, <laughs> I kept writing and writing and suddenly, I guess about five or six years ago, I had a story and I just felt it should be a play. I, it just felt like these people should be acting this out and not that the descriptions began to go to the wayside. And I wrote it as a play and had the wonderful good fortune to go to the O'Neill with it and um, where I immediately was informed that I didn't know anything about writing plays because uh, I had people appearing on one side of the stage and the other with no time in between to get back and I had no idea there was a backstage or anything. I just thought, oh, they just show up here and then they show up here and they speak. <laughs> and that was my education, really. The O'Neill with, uh, with the wonderful, basically, the playwrights there people that I came together with were the people that uh, helped me learn about the theater. Watching their plays, hearing their plays read, talking to them late at night at Chuck's, this is where we went and hung out after a show, and um, the dramaturgs and just all the people that were gathered together there. It was my training ground and I went there twice and uh, I was much better the second time. I didn't have people popping up in places instantly after they were somewhere else and had a sense of structure and um, and those people, the playwrights that I met there are still sort of the, the uh, I consider my colleagues and uh, it's as a writer needless to say you live a very lonely life. You sit in your room and you write all day and then after about three days of it you think I better get out. Um, and then you call up a playwright somewhere that you've met and you go have coffee or something and you realize that they've been sitting alone and it's it's very nice. I mean you have a connection that way, which writers need particularly because they only get it once every three years when they have a play on. <laughs> they get to meet some directors and some actors. Well, uh, um, let's see, I started writing in a sort of odd way. I, used, I grew up in New York and I used to go to the June Taylor School of the Dance <laughs> on 56th and Broadway where I studied tap dancing. <laughs> and uh, afterwards my mother used to pick me up and we went to actually Broadway plays. We used to go to musicals on Saturday afternoons. So I always loved the theater though I didn't think I was going to become a June Taylor dancer. <laughs> so, and then I, I went off to uh, Mount Holyoke to college and I was studying to become a congressional intern and I used to fall asleep in the library and a friend of mine said, well why are you doing this? We could take playwriting at Smith and Shop. So, <laughs> 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 so 
if any of you have ever compared the shopping in South Hadley, which is where Mount Holyoke is, to the shopping in Northampton, which is where Smith is, the shopping is infinitely better in Northampton. Uh, I said yes, and off we went to uh, Northampton. And um, actually, what I learned there was suddenly you got credit in life for something you liked to do. And I had no idea that that could happen. And um, I then went on to apply to business school and drama school at the same time, <laughs> having a clear direction in life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and for some, I think, odd reason, I got into both. I think because to the business school, I applied and said, basically, I want to be a playwright. And I'm sure they thought, this girl is so strange, let's take her. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went to the Yale Drama School. And very much what Cindy was talking about, the playwright she met at the O'Neill, what happened to me was I met Chris Durang and Albert Inarado and people who I was just in awe of and became friends with, really great friends, and we've stayed friends and in a way became part of a community with them and started writing plays and hoped to finally grow up to be a playwright. So that was so isn't it nice that you did? Yes. Born yesterday was your first play on Broadway, but there must have been something before that, wasn't there? Just life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. I, I think I would have to say, <clears throat> in all honesty, that I owe the whole thing to Adolf Hitler. <laughs> if it hadn't been for Hitler, I don't think I ever would have become a playwright. But uh, because I was other things uh, when I was very young, uh, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and eventually became an actor and uh, then found my way to Hollywood and uh, I was a film director, uh, quite a successful film director for some years. And then came the Hitler part because we got into the war and I was in the army for five and a half years. Uh, I, I was drafted before we were in the war. Uh, and being in the Army was a curious experience because it was the first time in my whole life that I had been unemployed. Uh, when I was in the Army, the pre-war Army, there was nothing for any of us to do. <laughs> I, I, I remember one particular detail when the company, my company, was split into half. And the first half of the company went out and dug a long, long trench about a quarter of a mile long. And then they were dismissed, and then my part of the company came in and filled it up. <laughs> so that, that was the sort of activity that was going on. And I realized that I was beginning to stagnate. And although I had worked in the theater and I had worked in films, the idea of writing never had crossed my mind at all. I, I, I'm basically illiterate anyway, and I, I thought, writing a play, I wouldn't have any idea how one goes about that. But circumstances alter cases, and uh, with nothing much to do, and no chance of, of directing anything as, as, as an army private, I decided that I would uh, see if I could write something. So I started to write something. And what I knew how to write was a movie. So I started to write a movie, and it was called A Little Knowledge. And uh, I wrote on that for a while. And when I was about a third of the way through, I realized that I was writing something that would never, ever be produced in the movies. 
In the first place, it had a venal senator as a character. And in the second place, it had a man and a woman living together without benefit of clergy, which was not done in those days. I know your generation is terribly advanced. And, I and so I put it away. But a few months later, it occurred to me in one lonely, depressing evening that perhaps I could turn that into a play. And so I changed the title from A Little Knowledge to Born Yesterday, and I wrote it as a play. And uh, I sent it to my wife, and uh, she wrote back a, a letter which was, for her, very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> she said, it's all right. <laughs> So we put it away, and, and when the war was over, uh, I took it to Max Gordon, who was a friend of mine and a wonderful producer, and uh, he said he'd put it on, and that's how it started. Wonderful. I think that sometimes now that they're going to be closing Fort Dix, New Jersey, that they should keep part of it as a national landmark for people in the arts. I knew a, a, a gentleman who was a wonderful television producer who started uh, as a set designer, got to Fort Dix, and ended up doing a film called The Horse Gas Mask. And that launched his career in television after the war. So I think it's a great point. Um, Pamela, I, you, you mentioned something if I'm about, uh, although it, it got a laugh, about uh, pre-med and mm -hmm. uh, uh, psychology um, and dealing with playwrights and in dealing with new plays and dealing in the theater have you ever called on that discipline yes <laughs> and actually um, at the time that I was uh, I was an undergraduate and I was really interested in possibly going into clinical psychology I got very involved uh, for a couple of summers in working with uh, children uh, emotionally disturbed and retarded children working at camps and we used a lot of behavior modification techniques which basically came down to um, rewarding people for good behavior and basically ignoring bad which is something that uh, <laughs> I have learned I would say in life let alone in work you know is, a, is extremely valuable I, I would say more than anything else as a director, carrying that over, really <laughs> learning to, um, in working with people, remembering to give positive feedback on things that work and basically not trying to put things in the positive instead of the negative. I think that's probably more than anything else. Obviously, people who are interested in psychology, I know a lot of people in the theater are obviously interested in psychology. I mean, it, you know, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. A lot of people I know have said, yes, they were at one interest a time interested in going to psychology and sort of made the switch. Um, I found it more interesting, ultimately. Um, it seemed to me theater gave you the benefit of studying people and a lot more, um, studying literature, for example. Um, I would ask, so, where did you get your MFA in directing? You just uh, Southern Methodist University. Mm -hmm. so there are not many colleges that have that, do they? Just um, a few. Well, you know, programs fluctuate so much. They mm -hmm. change depending on any particular year, who the faculty happens to be, and sometimes directing programs ebb and flow. George, what about you at Yale? Do you have... There is, yes, there's an MFA program at, at Yale in, in, uh, in directing, too. 
Pam, um, what was your first play that you directed, uh, uh, and how did it come about? Actually, my very first play that I directed was in high school, if you remember. Well, that's fine. Uh, that's a good way to start. It was America Hurrah uh, by Vanitali. And uh, we happened to have a terrible teacher, high school drama teacher. <laughs> and uh, so that's sort of how that happened. Um, I ended up directing the play. <laughs> so. And then the thr I think one of the major thrills of my life, it was a one-act play, and we all entered a one-act contest that went to a regional, you know, we all convened, and I grew up in Virginia, we convened in Williamsburg, and there were one-act plays from all over the state. And um, ours was the only student-directed play, and it won. So I was, I was, without knowing it, really hooked after that. Um, and in college I acted, but also started doing more and more directing. And I would say fortunately, actually, I went to... Uh, a college that did not have a theater, undergraduate theater program. Um, I, was, I was at Radcliffe at Harvard. There was a lot of theater going on, but there was no program. And the, although at the time I really mourned that, I think ultimately I realized that there was a great deal of freedom in that. If you had the desire and the energy to get a play on and to get the money together and the people together, you could do anything you wanted. Um, and consequently, I didn't realize this until after the fact, until after I graduated and left, that I had learned a great deal um, from that sense of freedom, I think. And then I did go on to actually enter a program that was yeah. and, uh, very rigorous. And what was your first professional experience? I mean, where you got paid. Where I got paid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Actually, a, um, a summer stock theater up in the mountains of Colorado uh, oh, that's was where I So tell us a little did. bit about it. How did it happen? Did they call you well, up? Well, how you? it happened was I was a resident stage manager there for two seasons, and I oh. finally said, I ain't coming back unless I direct a play. So, oh, well, that's, that's um, one way to do it. <laughs> so it was the late Christopher Bean was actually the first show that I got some money, some money being like $25 extra a week or something like that, but I got paid. That's good. So that was my first well, professional. Wendy, uh, you've had such a fabulous career. What was your first professional experience? Well, oddly enough, it goes back to the June Taylor School of the Dance. <laughs> No, this is our sponsor. No, what happened was that there was a woman named Louise Roberts who was the sort of administrative assistant there who went on to run something called the Clark Center, which was a dancing school. And the Clark Center used to be next door to Playwrights Horizons in the Y on 52nd and 8th Avenue. And my mother ran into Louise on the street. This was when I first began writing plays. And Louise said, how's Wendy? And my mother started hyperventilating and saying, she's not a lawyer, she's not married to a lawyer, and now she's writing plays. And I think <laughs> <laughs> Louise, just to sort of calm this woman, said, well, give me one of Wendy's plays, and I'll show it to Bob Moss, who runs a theater next door to us. And this was in 1973. So my mother gave Louise this play of mine called Any Woman Can't. Uh, and it was done as a staged reading at Playwrights Horizons, and I've sort of been involved with that theater ever since. That's um, wonderful. So that was sort yeah. of a long... Terrific. Very lucky. Yeah. Then you went yeah. to... Romance, romance went to uh, 
No, then I went I to... I mean, this is a romantic. Went to the Manhattan Theatre Club. For no, th then what happened was I went to the Yale School of Drama and, then ca and had written uh, Uncommon Women as a one-act play while I was at Yale. It was uh, my senior play there, really. And then came back to New York and had a glamorous job as the delivery girl for the O'Neill Center. <laughs> so <laughs> I used to uh, carry the scripts to the readers uh, at the O'Neill on the subway in big bags. And I would torment Lloyd Richards by telling him they were judging the plays by their covers. <laughs> um, and then what happened was I sent the play around to various theaters where they, it was rejected. At one point, it was rejected postage due. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and, um, and then Andre Bishop at Playwrights Horizons and Bob Moss had remembered me from that reading of Any Woman Kent and said, come here and let's do a reading of this play. So that was the first reading of Uncommon Women as a one act. And having heard it, I went and rewrote it as a two act play, gave it, quit my job as a messenger girl, submitted it <laughs> to the O'Neill and it was done there that summer, which like Cindy was a wonderful experience for me. And uh, the play then was done at, at the Phoenix Theater. So, I hope you all, I, I just want to say this because I'm not sure they, they know that Mr. White is the O'Neill Center. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, why don't you quickly tell us what the O'Neill does and how it does well, it for the playwrights. Well, vis-a-vis playwrights and, and musical people, we do, we exist to, uh, um, on, on the best, uh, kind of model of, of other places like Playwrights Horizons and, and New Dramatists and, and actually as a sort of a godparent in Lucille uh, Lortel, who's here today, we, we devote ourselves to new plays and new musicals and new opera um, and try to give the playwright a chance uh, to work with the material and uh, during uh, the summer and into the fall uh, season. And, uh, I, I remember very much uh, how delighted and surprised I was when someone said one of the plays that, are, that we're going to uh, do this summer is by Wendy. And I said, wait a minute, you mean the girl that was running around with all the, you know, and, and we were delighted at that one, I must say. So that, that's what the O'Neill is. How does the program work, though? Well, we, we, uh, we, we entertain players. about uh, between 12 and 1,500 scripts a year come in. Uh, which are read thanks to people like uh, Wendy running them around uh, with them, and and then they are distilled down to uh, another roughly about ten percent, which are then uh, examined uh, by a senior panel of of uh, selectors, and from that we do usually about twelve to fifteen new works a year with uh, top acting and directing people. Uh, and uh, in Waterford with uh, a, a person, people called dramaturgs who are senior critics who will work with the plays. Um, and uh, I know Edith Oliver is here and is one of our dramaturgs every, every uh, summer. Um, and out of that, hopefully the plays can go on. We, we exist. I, I guess the basic summary is that we are uh, a research and development center for the theater. That's the best way to really get And we exist f for Thank that you. purpose. Thank you. I want to ask Gar. You were very well known already as a person in Hollywood when you did Born Yesterday, but you took it to Max Gordon, and then, then what happened? I mean, he produced it, but I mean, there's more to it. When you say you produced it, there's a whole lot that goes with that. You have to get the cast, and uh, you didn't have to get a director. You were your own director. Yeah. But tell us about the getting uh, the cast. I remember there was a whole lot of difficulty in the beginning. 
Yes, I, <coughs> I hesitate to go into the difficulties because I, I, I wouldn't want to discourage anyone from working in the theater. I mean, what you've heard up to now uh, <laughs> wouldn't exactly make you dash to that uh, profession. Uh, the fact is that it is extremely difficult. And in the years that I have been involved in the legitimate theater, it has become increasingly difficult. Now, we remember a time when a normal season would turn up between 30 and 40 new plays. Isn't that right? Right. Well, now we're fortunate if we get three or four. So uh, that would almost signal the slow death of the theater, but it has been called the fabulous invalid, and I suppose it still is, uh, because there are always apparently people writing plays and, and, and sending them around and trying to get them on. Uh, as I said, my own experience was, was extremely lucky because there was Max Gordon, who was a friend of my wife's and a friend of mine, and when I finished the play and I gave it to him and he responded affirmatively, then it was just a question of <laughs> casting it and getting the getting the right production auspices. But, like practically every play that's done, and I'm sure that each one of us can recite a horrifying experience, <laughs> and in the case of my first play, I had a friend, a pal, someone I was really fond of, named Jean Arthur. She was a celebrated film actress, and a damn good one, too, and an adorable creature, and I more or less designed the play for Jean Arthur, sort of fitted it to her personality and capabilities. But then, all hell broke loose, because it turned out she hadn't been on the stage for a long time, and uh, she was uncomfortable in the part, and she was unhappy in the part, and sometimes she'd play and sometimes she wouldn't play, and we got to the point where I was so completely demolished by the experience that I went to Max Gordon and said, let's put it away, let's, let, let's close it. Max Gordon, however, was a theater manager of the old school. And he said to me, nothing doing, we're not going to close the show. He said, this play is so terrific. He said, we could do it with 14 Chinamen. <laughs> well, that didn't seem a practical idea to me. In the first place, I didn't know 14 Chinamen. But he... He, he <coughs> took the position that in the theater, the play was what mattered. And uh, if you didn't have one actress, you had another actress. So we looked around and we cast around. And I remembered seeing a wonderful nightclub act, you probably remember it, called yes. The Reviewers. Right. The Reviewers, Adolph Green and Betty Comden and this girl named Judy Holliday. And I thought she was spiffing in every way. And so I sent her the play, and uh, she hadn't ever done anything important on Broadway, but I knew how good she was. And Max Gordon, courageous gink he was, he just took a chance. And I must say that from the very first hour of her rehearsal, we knew that we were home free, because she was creative and, and 
chanting, and she was simply wonderful. And uh, are there any actresses here? Any actors and actresses? Quite a lot. Well, it's an interesting thing what happened. Uh, we did the play 42 years ago, and 42 years later, there's a revival. And so the casting process starts all over again. Well, you can't have Judy Holliday, you can't have anybody like Judy Holliday. So you have to start absolutely fresh and from scratch. And those of you who remember Judy Holliday, remember that she was a perfectly enchanting comedian, probably one of the best we've ever had in the theater or in films for that matter. But she was not a beauty. She made up for that lack by having a personality which was glittering and fascinating and adorable. She was not, however, a, what you call a good-looking girl. She was not a beautiful girl. Well, now 42 years have gone by, and we have to do the play from scratch, and we get another girl. And this girl is a beauty. I mean, she is a knockout, and she, in addition to being beautiful, she's very, very sexy, too, which never hurts, by the way. <laughs> and uh, the color of, of the whole production has changed somewhat. It's, 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 it's quite a different play. <coughs> and uh, both she and Ed Asner uh, bring a completely fresh and new quality, so that even as I look at it, although nothing in the text has been changed, not a word, yeah it still looks like quite a different play. Yeah. They were both here yesterday, you know, Ed Asner and... Uh, yes, and, I knew that. Madeline, you knew that. Yeah. I'd like to uh, pick up on something that you said. We had all, a full season in your time when you did the play 42 years ago, and lots of things were on Broadway. And there isn't that many, obviously, today. But there's so much more help for playwrights today. The O'Neills and, and, and Manhattan Theatre Club and Phoenix and Playwrights Horizons and Circle Rep, all of those are of great help to a playwright and a director. What is the difference? What is happening? That with all, all the aids that you're getting, why isn't there more? Why isn't there more playwriting? Why isn't there more plays being done? At your time, there was no one. You were on your own. You went to Max Gordon or a, a Max Gordon and there a play was produced. If you couldn't get it done there, there was no place else for you to go, really. Well, remember that back then, we did not have what is now come to be known as the regional theater movement. Right. There are more actors and actresses employed in the United States today on a daily or nightly basis than ever before in its history. There are literally thousands of actors and actresses working in the regional theaters all over the country. Florida, Texas, uh, uh, Dallas. Seattle, Dallas, yes, everywhere. Chicago. <laughs> the, the, the sadness is that it's pretty hard for an actor or an actress to make a living in the regional theater because the salaries are comparatively low. And uh, they do it, of course, because they hope that it will be the breakthrough that will bring them to Broadway. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that situation. I, I, I wish that the theater was truly rich in various locations, and in a way it is. Some it places, is. some places have... It's not coming here. Yeah. Cindy Lou, you, you, you um, were talking also about your moving from fiction, writing fiction and, and stories, to the uh, stage, 
you mentioned that. What made you move, do that? What, made, what was it in the, the story that made you think, hey, it's, it's uh, you know, and, and indeed, uh, what was your background vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, the, the theater and, and made you make that switch? And, and not say it's a television piece or it's a film. Um, my background with the theater just doesn't exist. Um, I had uh, been, I wasn't an avid theater goer at that time. I'd been, occasionally I went to a play. Uh, the thing that made me make the switch was, it, it just came from within. I, I had been writing sh stories and uh, I'd been working on a novel and I'd noticed that the last thing I had written, literally, it, if you look at it, is a play. It was, it was supposed to be a novel, but I had dispensed with describing anything but the voices. I just had voices. And I had sort of done it in the French style where they have a dash voice, dash voice, and I, the only thing I was missing was the characters' names. And through the voices, I had written a book where through the voices you had to figure out that the character had walked to the window or had come back or they would refer to things. And um, it just seemed, uh, there was just a point where I, I became so full of the life of the story, I was inside it. I felt I was in a physical place in the story and it existed and the people were real and they were talking and it made me want that to happen. I wanted to see it. I wanted somebody to embody these characters and to um, stand up and, you know, bring to life because the voices became not enough. If, as I dropped away description and everything, it was, it was something that I just felt I wanted to see. And, um, and when I did see it at the O'Neill, and that was my first play that summer where actually we first met, and it was quite, that was Munya, and it was really something because I learned several things. One is, you know, you, you get actors that so enrich your work, if you're lucky, um, that it's like you, you, you have a foundation and your play gets taken to this higher level where it's enriched by the director and the actors and it's the collaboration, if, you, if you're lucky, can be, uh, you bring your vision and your voice, but um, they make it their own so that I saw things in my characters that I didn't even know about. You know, I, it, was, it was pretty fast. And then I saw things that I didn't like. <laughs> and I was sure they weren't right. And, you know, and maybe they were, I don't know. But uh, the one thing that, um, as long as the playwright is there, you know, I really do believe that the, the production that involves the playwright should be the production that most realizes their vision. So, you know, that's when I, I went into the clinches with the director and would say, um, I really thought, you know, I'll never forget I had a character that just uh, did these sort of jazz uh, riffs verbally and somehow the actor wasn't able to do it and, and I, I couldn't and finally I went into Lloyd and I said he's supposed to be a saxophone and uh, <laughs> Lloyd said it's very hard to play a saxophone Cindy you can <laughs> it's very hard to just be a saxophone on stage you have to give him a little better motive than that um, so we worked on it and uh, sort of you were with the director and you were not in awe of the director? That and first summer nice. I was just in awe of everything. I just wandered mm -hmm. around thinking, did they, really, literally, I didn't know what the O'Neill was. I had gone to some library, some bookstore, and had seen this book, uh, you know, to help the playwright, all the pl places you just send your plays here and there, and they had a little calendar in the back and it said October O'Neill Theater 
National Playwrights Conference accepts scripts, and I wrote down the address, and I thought, well, I'll send it there. And, uh, <laughs> and when I got there, there's something called a pre-conference, and you go to this big lunch, and you meet all the other playwrights, and I just looked at all these people. It was Neil Bell, Lee Blessing, John Shanley, um, you know, August Wilson, and me, and uh, <laughs> I sort of sat there, and I remember one of the people came up to me, and I just said, how, wh what are we going to do? What is this? We're going to read our plays out loud, and, you know, we're going to have four days of rehearsal. And this guy, I remember, he came up to me and said, you don't know where you are, do you? <laughs> <laughs> but I found out. <laughs> I'd like to talk about the, the playwright director with, with Wendy and, and, you know, how you worked with him and how you felt right from the beginning of it. With, with this specific play? Or well, we'll any start play? with this and then go back. <laughs> okay. Well, gosh, I mean, it's, it really is the most important thing in terms of a, a playwright and a director in establishing that kind of relationship. Um, with the Heidi Chronicles, what happened was that that play was done as a reading at Playwrights Horizons, basically first directed by me and Andre Bishop just to hear the play, uh, that Joan Allen and Peter Friedman both did this reading uh, more than a year ago, October. And then I decided that I wanted to work on the play outside of New York. I just wanted to focus in on the play without any other pressures at all. And so we decided to go do it at the Seattle Rep uh, and didn't have a specific director in mind at the time. And I talked to various people and asked them if they would like to go out to Seattle and do this play. And for various reasons, their schedules made them unable to go. And so Dan Sullivan, who runs that theater, said, well, then he'd do it. <laughs> so, and so I wasn't sort of signed on with Dan to do it forever. It was really just this two-week workshop. But I found, as soon as I got there, we started going through the script, line by line, and that Dan had a, a wonderful analytic mind in terms of following this play and what was the story of the play. I write very much, as what Cindy was saying, I hear, vo I hear voices, but there's no one there. I don't know. So, so then I make them up. So, so it's all, I write very long plays also when I first start writing. I have some friends, like my friend James Lapine, it's like a war plan. He's got all these note cards and he knows exactly what's going to happen in every scene. And I just start writing and think, well, let's see what happens. So it can go on for hours and hours. So, so I, that's pretty much what happened with Heidi. And I began talking with Dan about it. And we went through it and he started asking the right questions. I think it's very important that a director not impose himself on the play, but rather get the best out of the play. And I began to see that that's what was happening here. And I could also tell that this was the sort of play, I who am always happy to talk rather than work, that I could <laughs> always say, well, this is what happened to me in 1968 and then I met this guy in 1972 and I would talk, talk, talk. And we never did that. What we did was just concentrate on the text. And I'll never forget that first night in Seattle when we did the play, it was like three hours and 20 minutes long. It was way too long, and it wasn't working specifically, and I was in a great mood because I knew we could fix it. And that's, there's nothing I like better than going into a room, the lights go down, and when it's working, you sit there with the director, the designer, and the producer. It's sort of finite. And if you know you can fix something, it's very exciting. It's very unhappy when you know it's gotten away from you and you don't know where you're going. But, but the thought that you can create something and make it tighter and right is very nice. And, and I knew that I could do this with Dan. How do you know when it's gotten away with you and there's no face to go? And what uh, do you do then? Because that's where, I mean, I've had that experience too, and that I'm willing to cut anything. 
<laughs> so, and, and it begins to be like shots in the dark. You begin to, you know, well, gee, let's put these two scenes together in Act Two, or maybe we'll throw out Act Two, and how about bringing in <laughs> someone else? And that, that never ha Interestingly enough, with this play, the scenes that are now on Broadway are the same scenes, basically the structure of the play, as it was when we went to Seattle. The only difference was it was Dan Sullivan who said, I think we should really try something uh, before each act, maybe an art lecture, maybe something, because otherwise you're going to have 35-year-old people coming out and acting 16, and people are going to think this is, this is the not-for-profit theater, and they just couldn't afford the 16-year-old actors. <laughs> so I went madly around Seattle looking for women's art history books uh, and trying to do some research. So, but other than that, the actual structure of that play was, was the same. And I, I always know that I'm in trouble when I start throwing out scenes and compressing acts and then bringing in people who weren't in it before. That, that scares me. Trying to make it work. Is that yeah. so, Garson, the same thing? Trying to make it work? What happens with you? It never works. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think, uh, I, I think that playwriting is a process, as Wendy says, is quite a, quite a different thing. The most important element in a play is not the playwright or the director or the set designer. The most important element is the audience. And that's our great director. The audience is what tells us what to do. Uh, now, I've had experiences when I was directing and not writing, I would say to someone like well, Donald Arden Stewart, I directed a play of his once, and there was a terrific joke in the play. It was a great joke. When we did it at rehearsal, the cast just <laughs> fell about. And we thought, well, they'd never be able to do this without breaking up. But anyway, they did. And there was only one little detail missing, and that was that the audience didn't laugh. <laughs> Well, that was disconcerting, of course, and so I said to Don, I think the time has come, we've got to get rid of that. He said, get rid of it? What are you talking about? He said, that's the funniest line in the show. And I said, that may be, but the audience doesn't know that. And, and there's no way of conveying it to them. And playwrights sometimes get pretty stubborn about such things. It took a month to get that damn thing out of the show because he loved it, he knew it was funny, I knew it was funny, but the audience didn't. Uh, Moss Hart, who was one of the ablest men who has ever lived in our theater, Moss Hart used to say, <clears throat> you won't be offended, I hope, but Moss Hart used to say, the audience is an idiot genius. The audience somehow tells you. They tell you when it's boring, they tell you when it's funny, they tell you when it's exciting, they know when to gasp, they know when to shut up, they know when to cry. And that is the most important element in theater. As a matter of fact, there used to be a thing that said, if, uh, the old saying in, in the theater, if they cough, go back five pages. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, I'd love to hear Pam tell about her experiences in directing Crossing the Lancey. You know, starting the way it did, and then it's tremendous life. How did you tell about that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Crossing the Lancey by Susan Sandler. Um, 
Actually, I was... Uh, why were you chosen? Why was I chosen? Because I, I first was introduced to the play as the literary manager at the Ensemble Studio Theater, and Susan was a member of EST, and I ran a group once a week called the Playwrights Unit. And member playwrights would come in and we would read scenes and acts, and um, basically it was just a group of writers reading each other's work. And um, actually, Crossing Delancey, um, I was introduced to the play that way, and I was also to Jillian on her 37th birthday, also came through the Playwrights Unit at EST. So, um, Susan started bringing this play in, and I actually first she wrote it as a, she started it as a screenplay. And we said, no, 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 you've got to write this for theater. This is a wonderful piece of theater. This will work. And I said to Susan, I love this play. Uh, she had only written the first act. And uh, I said, I would really love to work on this play with you. And it actually took her about another two and a half years to write the second act. But I would talk to her, call her periodically, and say, How's the second act coming? Let's do a reading of what you've got. Let's. So that's basically how that evolved. And, um, and then actually, I think I was mentioning to you that we did the play at the Jewish Rep. And um, I know Joan Micklin Silver, and, and I usually invite her to, to things that I direct. And I sent her a note and said, this is a sweet play. You should come and see it. And she did. And then she came back the next night. And she came back the next night. And she, and she decided to make a movie of it. So. That's how that happened. A really extraordinary play, an extraordinary movie, but you did wonders for it on the stage. Thank you. I had one question of, of Gar. I, you know, there's, a, there's a, a general feeling, which I, I must say that I sort of subscribe to, too, that playwrights really shouldn't direct their own work. But of course, you created a legend and on all fronts with, with Born Yesterday. And I wondered what your feeling is about that. Because sometimes, again, a playwright is too close. And I know the old uh, Sir Arthur Quiller Couch, the great theorist about writing, said, murder your darlings. If there's something that's so good you think is wonderful, is usually a conceit and should be thrown out. Do you lose perspective, or don't you feel you do? Well, I don't think I do, because I've, always, yeah. I've always directed my own work because I'm jealous of it. <laughs> I don't want anybody touching my baby or playing with it or bouncing it on their knee. I want to bounce it on my knee. Uh, no, I think, I think the ideal situation is for a director uh, to be the author, the author to be the director. Now, there is a little difficulty, and that is that many playwrights don't know how to direct a play. But it's no mystique. There's no magic to it. It's a craft. You learn how to do it. You learn how to communicate with the players or with the designer or with the musicians. And that should be learned by all playwrights. And I take a very firm position on this point. I think that directing is only an extension of the writing. I mean, we write long descriptions of the action and what we want done. Well, why don't we just see that it's done the way we mean it to be done? Uh, moreover, I think most of the playwrights I know, and um, Wendy and I are on the Dramatist Guild Council, so we see each other quite often, and we see each other with all the other playwrights, or many, many of the playwrights. We all love each other, don't we? we we're all crazy about each other. There is not the slightest feeling of 
competitiveness or jealousy. <laughs> there isn't. There isn't. All playwrights are crazy about each other. I mean, when Wendy won the Pulitzer and she came to the meeting, the whole damn place stood up and cheered, didn't they? Yes. yes. And, 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 and Obviously, there wasn't a director. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th I think ideally, ideally, in the best of all possible worlds, as they say, I think a playwright should direct his or her own work. Uh, it's true, there's a certain amount of experience required, a certain amount of expertise. We could always go to Seattle and learn how to do it. You know? We're going to come back to this again because we, we constantly talk about the role of the playwright and the director and then the extended to the actor and then that most important ingredient, the audience. Mm -hmm. But right now we're going to have to take a break and don't go far, stand up, take a deep breath, think about the questions you want to ask us. I have loads of them and if you don't get in, I will. And come back very quickly to the playwright directors. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. We're back at the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre. It's coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This session is on the playwright director, and we are truly privileged to have this wonderful, wonderful, distinguished panel. And I'm not going to say anything more about them. I'm just going to let them talk for themselves on what it is to write for the theatre, what it is to work in the theatre. And Jean Dalrymple and George White, our co-moderators, are going to pick up where we left off, the role of playwright versus director and vice versa. Well, I think that Wendy always has a lot to say, so let's start with Wendy. <laughs> uh, I would like to first say, though, that this segment is not brought to you all by the June Taylor School of the Dance. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. uh, 
funny. My uh, Dan Sullivan, who directed my play, The Heidi Chronicles, is currently doing an adaptation of a Goldoni play at the Seattle Rep, which he has written and directed. And he left me a message on my machine saying, Wendy, I don't know what to do. The playwright isn't talking to the director. And <laughs> And the writer is refusing to take the director's cuts. So I thought that that was so interesting. I think, uh, you know, setting a, a relationship with the playwright like a rela and a director is like any other kind of intimate relationship. They're very variable and they can change a great deal and they can be wonderful or they can be horrible. Uh, Jerry Gutierrez, who's a wonderful director, directed Isn't It Romantic? And that's an interesting story, too, about that play. Isn't It Romantic began at the Phoenix Theater. I think it was done in 1981 and opened justifiably, actually, to mixed reviews because it was a play that wasn't really finished. I didn't, that was one of these plays that I was fixing to make it work. It wasn't right. The spine of it was not correct. Uh, and every night the, the ending of that play really changed. And it was, it just wasn't working right and luckily I spoke with Andre Bishop who runs Playwrights Horizons and said I'd like a chance to do this play again let's because I've begun to think about what happened there and I think it can be fixed and so uh, he said well I think it'd be very good if you worked with Jerry Gutierrez and Jerry's a director who has a very theatrical flair and we began going through the play and um, began to figure out how this play could be staged, in fact, so that it seemed like it was moving forward. A lot of the criticism was that it seemed like it was a play that was going from joke to joke. And I thought, this is a play about character. I know it. <laughs> and it seemed more, in many cases, about people who sit down and say, I'm unhappy. And then the next person walks in and says, yeah, well, I'm even more unhappy than you. And then they start telling jokes to each other and bring on someone's mother. So, <laughs> um, so Jerry and I went, went through the script and began to talk a lot about, in fact, the production of that play that's differently a little bit than and how to make it seem like a play that was moving along theatrically and the play was redone at Playwrights Horizons and worked with a text that was different but not all that different which was very interesting and had a, a totally different response to the play uh, and yet and I think it, a lot of that had to do with Jerry's also warmth towards me. We were very close with one another. But then we went and did a workshop of a musical that I wrote that really never came to fruition called Miami. And that experience did not work out as well, not because of Jerry, just because of sometimes plays, I think, have lives of their own. And sometimes they work out, and sometimes they don't work out for various complications. I also think musicals are very different than plays and are awfully hard really hard. I, I want to also go back to the business about uh, directing and playwrights directing their own work. What do you think about that, Pam? Um, From the, you know. Well, can I, actually, I just want to say sure. something. I was just listening to Wendy. Um, one thing that you said earlier, which I, I've really learned, which is so absolutely true and important, um, that when you're working on a new play with a playwright, it is truly imperative that the director not get into playwriting. As you say, that, that isn't um, your job. It's, it is, in fact, to ask questions and to say, I don't understand what is happening here, or basically to pose the question so that the writer can think about it, and then sometimes something that you will address will, the solution will be an entirely different solution than the question you've brought up, but it, that's, that's the writer's job. One other thing that I think I've discovered over time is 
that my allegiance ultimately is to the play even more than to the writer, which sometimes is not one and the same. The writer is working from his or her unconscious or subconscious or whatever. And there are things sometimes that the writer really doesn't know he or she has or doesn't have in the play. And I've found that sometimes it's really important to zero in on the play. Um, there have been times when I have said, let me, let me read the first draft of this play. Oh, no, I'm, I don't let anybody see that. That was a piece of direct that I wrote four years ago, and it's sitting in the bottom of my drawer. But to go back, and sometimes the original impulses for a play um, are the ones that you really have to go back and tap into. As you said, when you start cutting characters and scenes, and um, that in many ways it's the original impulse that you are cutting off. Um, and the times when I really have stuck to that concept that the play, the play needs addressing and sometimes the writer needs to what am I trying to say? Sometimes that it isn't so much what the writer is actually saying to you in conversation, but w what is in the play that needs to get addressed. Because ultimately, sometimes the writer will come around and say, gee, I didn't think of that. Um, and as always, in a play, it is not, quite often, it is not, more than often, it is not the words that we're zeroing in on anyway, it's what's underneath the words, and that's what we're talking about, really. Yeah. The subtext or the motor or whatever you want to call it of the play. I would um, like to ask Gar <coughs> about uh, directing film and directing plays. They're very different, aren't they? Oh, indeed. They? indeed. Yeah. Uh, before I answer that question, I would like to just step back a pace and take up a cudgel or two here. Uh, <laughs> when you talk about a director, um, putting on his own work, or a playwright putting on his own work. We're on very dangerous ground here, because it's a question of what director, which playwright. All playwrights aren't the same, nor are all directors. And in some cases, it would be disastrous for a playwright to do his own work. Um, there's no better playwright currently working in the American theater than Neil Simon. I think Neil Simon stuns us all. I, year after year, he keeps coming up with smash hits. Sometimes we like to kill him, but on the <laughs> other hand, we also admire him. And I talked to, 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 to Doc Simon about this one day. I said, why, why, don't, why don't you direct your own plays? He literally shuddered. He said, My, oh, God, he said, I couldn't, I couldn't stand that. I said, why not? He said, well, I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't sit in the theater day after day and see the play over and over again. He said, I'd go out of my rocker. He said, geez, it's bad enough that I have to come in once in a while and look at it. He said, I, he said, I couldn't do it. Once I've written the play, I've made my statement. There it is. It's out. And I want other people to monkey around with it. All right, so that's, that's, that's one playwright. There are other playwrights. Uh, Bill Soroyan is a very good example. We, I don't think we ever had a better playwright than Bill Soroyan. And Bill Soroyan <laughs> wanted desperately always to direct his own work, but as it happened, he was a terrible director. 
So he made a balls of it every time he tried. And, and so that there's no generalization possible. I think some playwrights, if they can't direct, it's not a great mystique. It's a, it's a craft. You can go out and learn it. You can learn it. You can go to Seattle for <laughs> a few weeks and, and put on a play or put on two plays, put on three and pretty soon you get the idea of how to deal with players, how to deal with actors, and how to deal with your own text. I take the position that the ideal situation is for a playwright to direct his own work. Now, that's, that's an opinion. That isn't a you case from heaven. That, that, that's what I think. At least it's worked out in my case. In other cases, it might be disastrous. So the only thing I'm questioning is the overall generalization. Now you asked a very now, nice question. I, I'm going to get in before Gene. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want to say, but you talked about what works so well with an audience, a big laugh, and it had to be cut, and you kept working about it. How do you address that if you are playwright-director? How do you hear whether this is something that's going to be cut or should be cut? What do you do? Which one takes over, the playwright or the director? Well, certainly not the director. The but you're both. Well, well when I'm both, I, I use my best judgment as a playwright and as a director. I think this is the ideal situation, if it can work. Uh, uh, every playwright, you just heard about a play that was put away, came back, looked at it, she couldn't bear it, then fixed it, fixed it, wrote, wrote some more, some more, some more. That's, that's the process of, of, of our business. It's mining and refining, all constantly, constantly refining. Uh, the, only, the only thing that I have to guard against myself is keeping my goddamn hands off it. <laughs> once, once it's on, I'm, I'm always tempted to go back and change something and fix something, but it's, it's dangerous. So I generally leave it alone once it's underway. Forget my other question. I just wanted to hear you again. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is one thing that I'd like to uh, also talk about, and I've, I've heard this now. I know with uh, Wendy when she did Uncommon Women, and, and uh, Cindy Lou did something a little differently. She heard voices, <coughs> we say. Uh, and Gar, you uh, had Gene Arthur in mind. I, I'd love to, you know, and I, I have this image of, of uh, obviously Shakespeare writing for Will Kemp and we're, we're you know, specific people. Um, and I, I know some, uh, many, many playwrights who have written uh, at least with specific people in mind. That fascinates me, and I wondered if you would address that a little bit about specific George, people. George, yeah. well, uh, we'll be able to pick that up in our questions because okay. there are so many Great. questions here, and I'm going to go to the first one. Why don't you ask you? Thank you. My name is Joyce Ehrman. I have a question for the playwrights. I'd like to know if you've ever written anything that you believed in so strongly that nobody else did, and at what point do you give it up, and does that cause you to lose a little bit of faith in yourself? Well, Wendy, I think you started on, on that. Uh, yes, I, I wrote this musical uh, called Miami, mm -hmm. which has an interesting story because the first time we did a reading of it, everyone seemed terribly excited about it, and it was just wonderful, and this and that. And then just it was one of those things through the pr process of it started not working for many reasons. One, uh, we just said it the wrong way in a way. And by the, uh, Phyllis Newman was in this particular production, was quite good. And one night, I think on our fi final nights, Phyllis could not be there. And I went on singing and dancing in Phyllis's <laughs> part. And I thought, this is it. <laughs> June <laughs> Taylor came in handy. <laughs> right. so, um, but what, it's funny, with Miami, I thought, I can't hold on to this right now. I've got to put this away. 
and I just, it's in my closet, and nothing really, it just sort of lives there, and, and people talk to me about it and ask me and say, are you going to work on it, and I really, Thank you. I, I just put it away in a closet. Thank you. Hello, my name is Roz Dunn, and I wanted to ask the panel, what can be done to encourage more young people to really study playwriting, because we need more playwrights? Well, George, I think you should answer that. Well, uh, obviously, I, I think that uh, I can go back to say that there are structures in place, uh, such as uh, Playwrights Horizons, uh, New Dramatists, uh, The O'Neill. Uh, I think we have to lean more heavily on our secondary schools and colleges to be more serious about uh, the theater, the theater craft, and not have bad drama teachers and things like that. I think it's very, very important to do that. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's a very important statement. I think that's where it begins. Indeed. I'm a student. Uh, my name is Lawrence Applebaum. To the playwrights, when a play has gotten great reviews out of town, um, do you change it to bring it to New York? New York, New York versus out of town, the critics and so forth? I um, try not to read reviews, so I don't know what they say, but um, you know, the word gets around sort of what's been said. And I, I think when you write a play, you're seeking the truth. You're not trying to fix it. You're not trying to make it work. If, if it's a five, ten-hour play and it's truthful and it works, people go see it. I mean, we have a history of that. If it's a 15-minute play and it's truthful and it works, there's a place for it. If it's I don't think you would be wise to do that. I think you always look to the play, not to the outside sources for information but about what to do with your play. At your previews, at being out of town, you're, you're really looking to the audience. You're looking for an audience reaction, aren't you? That's the reason for preview or for doing it wherever. Use whatever word you want to. Well, if it absolutely flops and you know it, that's true. But uh, you. you know, specifically about the, the reviews, I don't know, because sometimes you can get one town doesn't tell you what another town will do. And I, I do think you have to stick by your play and what you think it, how it's working. Thank you. My name is Josh Pearl. I'd like to ask the writers if um, during the course of writing, you know, if some of your characters are autobiographical from your history, is there some uh, danger in, uh, in revealing something about people? And how do you handle that reaction, that potential reaction from? I would think Wendy. <laughs> 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 And common Take women certainly was a start. <laughs> None of my characters are autobiographical. <laughs> I think, uh, well, actually, you know what? In order to write those characters, you really have to separate them from you and from your history and take them to another level, or it becomes very constrained writing them. Somehow, I, I always feel sort of looser when I sort of hold on to an emotional truth, but take the specifics of the character and change them. I think that th I find that very helpful, actually. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Kathleen Callahan. Um, when you're making a submission, and it's not through a personal introduction, but you've picked a couple of theaters because you know what they're doing, is it okay to make more than one submission at a time, or should you send it to one theater, wait to hear, or can you send it out to maybe two or three theaters at the same time? Yeah. I'll answer that. I think the greatest mistake is serial submissions. To submit a play to one place, wait till you get a response. If it's negative, submit it to someone else. This process, I speak from experience, would take three years for every play. 
because people to whom you submit plays are very slow. They might take a month, they might take two, they might take three, and I say the hell of them. Submit it to everybody and see if you get a take. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Mildred Wanch. Um, I'd like to know, how do you know when you've reached the final draft? Oh. Okay. <laughs> I, I actually, one, it was Jerry Gutierrez who told me that I, he knew we had reached the final draft when I was willing to cut my best joke. And then what I did was I took that joke and put it into the next play. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I do think it's when, in a way, you're, you can, when you're really yearning to go on to another play, in a way, when you've really done all the craft that you can with something, it, it is time to move on, I think. I don't think you really know that until you're in front of an audience. Um, and if you have the benefit of working at a theater where you have two weeks or so for previews, where you're really allowed to work on the play while you're performing, which is the best time, um, that's when you can get a lot of work done. But until you really have your audience there, you're not really sure that everything you've got is going to work. You know, they tell you. In previews, so many times you, you uh, hear around the, the, the town or from out of town, oh, it's too long, or this should be cut, or that's recut. But nobody does it. And it comes into town, and it opens, and it is still too long, and it has to be cut. What happens, and why is that? You've used the audience, but you haven't used what they're saying or doing. Or they'll say, well, the audience loved it, but it was a preview audience and it was not the same. Is there a difference between the two audiences, Carson? Well, <clears throat> Ruth and I once produced a play by Donald Logan Stewart called How I Wonder. And our great, great friend and my mentor, Thornton Wilder, came to see it because we tried it out in New Haven and he lives in New Haven. And so we went out to supper afterwards and he said to us, well, it's hopeless. And that's a terrible word to hear, isn't it? I said, why? He said, it's too long. I said, well, thought we've just opened the damn thing, and we're going to go to work on it, and we'll cut it, and we'll cut it some more, and then we'll trim it, and then we'll cut it. He said, it won't help. It'll still be too long. I said, what are you talking about? The curtain comes down now at 11.15, and we cut 15 minutes out. It'll come down to 11. He said, oh, you don't understand. He said, in this play, Every moment is too long. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. My name is Cynthia Kane. Uh, this is to the playwrights. When you write a play or you're thinking about writing your next thing, do you consider what size and type of audience you're writing for? You mean whether it's off-Broadway or off What kind of space, theater? what kind of, um, how many, <clears throat> you want a small theater, a large theater, any specific type of person you want to hit with this? or? Um, I don't really, to be honest. I mean, I, I write about what I find important to me, and I just hope and pray that you know, somebody else will find it important, too. Um, it's really thrilling when you find out that people of all different backgrounds and ages and everything respond to what you write, and, and sometimes that's the case and sometimes it isn't. You might be wise to think about how producible it is, uh, especially today, in today's theater. I mean, you know, if you write 30 characters and they all have to yeah. sing and dance and then also act and, you know, if it's too expensive, it's not going to get produced. So that is something you just have to keep an eye on, I think. I think the core of that question was writing for Broadway or off-Broadway. You've not written for Broadway, or have you? 
Well, I'd like to think I have. They just haven't taken it there. <laughs> but I mean specifically, you wrote the play. You wrote the play off Broadway. It was produced. My play was produced off Broadway. Right. When yes. you were writing that, did you visualize it on a small stage with a smaller theater, smaller audience? I I I knew I'd written a very intimate play. Mm -hmm. um, but I really didn't think about whether it was for Broadway or off-Broadway. I honestly must say, because there's intimate Broadway houses. Um, because of the face of Broadway at the moment, realistically, I think, you know, you, you might look at it and well, say that's an off-Broadway Will you have to change play. any bit for Broadway? We have to open it. I don't think so, but Wendy would probably be better to... Well, th that's been so interesting about this play, about the Heidi Chronicles, because it was done in the second space on modules in Seattle at Off-Broadway Theatre at Playwrights Horizons, and then at the, the Plymouth Theatre on Broadway. And it was not a play that I wrote specifically for Broadway in any way. I mean, it's about a woman, an art historian who becomes sad. I mean, it doesn't say, gee, let's get two tickets. <laughs> so, that sounds like a Broadway show to me, baby. I mean, you know. Um, so that really I found, what's interesting about plays, I was talking to Pam about this, is that the my play, which we all thought worked so beautifully at Playwrights Horizons, in fact, if you talk to the directors and designers, we all think it plays better on Broadway. And I'm really an off-Broadway baby. It has mm -hmm. to do with the theater craft involved in that those designers, the set designer, the lighting designers, and Dan Sullivan, the director, really got to stretch a muscle that they all have. There's no reason to believe that we are limited and can only work in certain spaces. Certain spaces demand different talents and crafts. And what you do is, what the wonderful thing is, is to be able to work in all of them, I think. Uh, for, you know, Cindy's plays to be done in, on Broadway and done in a small space in Seattle. It's, the plays will play in these different areas and different arenas when the lines between them begin to stop being drawn, I think. Very so. good. Carson, Broadway baby, would you like to add something <laughs> to that? You've, you've done mostly Broadway. Oh, are you, are you, you, I'm talking to you. Oh. Only. <laughs> What's the question? <laughs> you've done, uh, I, I think you've done only Broadway. No? No, I've, I've been produced off-Broadway. And too. how do you feel about the two mediums? Or is there, any, is there no difference as far as you're concerned? To me, there's no difference, except that off-Broadway audiences, by and large, are much, much better audiences, uh, by far. I think you get closer to what we used to call the people when you go off-Broadway. Let's remember that Broadway has become prohibitive. Broadway is a tourist attraction now. How many people who live and work in New York can afford a $40 ticket? $40 for one ticket. And then you get a, a, a beautiful musical like Jerry Robbins' show, and it goes up to 50, and the next thing you know, it's 55. 55 now. 55 now. Well, come on, you're talking about elitism of the worst sort. It only becomes a sort of a tourist attraction. So can I you do anything real... about it? Do you think you can do anything about it, you, your reputation in the theater? Well, it, it, it would take a little bit more. It would take a concerted effort, darling, of everybody concerned with the theater. The theater owners, the Schuberts, and if you want to negotiate with the Schuberts, I'm going to let you do it instead of me. <laughs> and it, it, it involves the stagehands, what they get, and the actors' minimum, what they get. How much is the actors' minimum now on Broadway? Marion? 
I, I think it's like eight something. I think it's seven fifty, but I'm not yeah, sure. Seven fifty yeah, or eight hundred. All right. Seven hundred and fifty dollars is the minimum. That's the minimum, which means that if a guy comes in, delivers a telegram, and goes off, he's got to get seven hundred and fifty dollars a week. That's insane. That's simply shocking. So that the whole structure has become overweighted and too expensive, and that's why they have to make a profit, and that's why they have to charge more. If everything else in the theater was scaled down to human size, the ticket prices could be too. I'd like to see that possible. Gene, do you think there's anything that could be done on that? Exactly. That. I agree perfectly said. with what he said. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we're two old-timers, after all. Yes. Uh, speaking of the actor's minimum, I used to get stars to play at City Center for $65 a week. That was the actor's equity minimum back in, in the 40s. I think, George, what are you well, doing? I, I just, I, I was, uh, uh, this whole of economics in the theater, I think, do, uh, does explain the, the, the earlier question about the amount of uh, uh, new plays that are coming in, certainly on Broadway, and it's why the regional theater, the off-Broadway, the um, 42nd Street, play, the Playwrights Horizons, places that are doing new work, <clears throat> have got to do them in that context, regardless of the size, because it just, it's not enough uh, money. There is... Uh, I, I remember that uh, I, on these very uh, uh, these seminars, uh, someone wanted to mention that a set for a particular show cost $640,000, and it went by. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, that's Never Neverland. How many houses can you build, full houses, you know, with uh, gold plumbing fixtures, if you want, <laughs> for $640,000? And it went by, and nobody picked that up? Uh, one thing I did want to get back to for a second, I want to hold on to this, is, is the idea of writing for specific people. And I was struck by what you said, Gar, about, the, about Gene Arthur and, and writing for people. I, do, do you all have people in mind? That's, I can't I, do, do it, do and it? I wish that we could because it's, it's always that time again. You'll have to well. say it afterwards because we've come to the end of the seminar on working in the theater. And this is the American Theatre Wing, and I'm president of it, and I thank you all for being here, and I thank this wonderful seminar on Playwright Director.